Uh, is the glass half full or half empty? Both? You're so political. How many of you uh, uh, sort of look at, look at the, uh, the half glass and say half full, just sort of, you know, by temperament? How many of you look at the half glass and by temperament say uh, half empty? How many of you look at the glass and, and say, well, I have to measure to be sure? So yeah, I think there are three distinct personality types. There, there are optimists, right? And there are pessimists. And then there are ones that are just like, I, I'm going to get this right. And I don't know what you call them, but they're aggravating to have in class. Uh, which one are you? Which one should you be? Optimists. We have one optimist. And... Hundreds of people who are trying to get it right. <laughs> All right, different warm-up question then, if you didn't like that one. Uh, this one requires uh, some thinking, uh, some uh, subjective thinking, so massage your scalp for a second. Uh, think of some stress or challenge that you currently have in your life. Something that kind of weighing on you or something that is looming or something like that. I'll just give you 10 seconds to just say, oh, yes. In fact, I do have a stress in my life. Who knew? Start, see if you could come up with something. All right, you kind of got something? Think of that stress or that challenge. In what ways do you have an excuse to expect it to go really well? To feel very optimistic about it. An excuse to be optimistic. In what ways do you have an excuse for that? It's like, yeah, I could justify feeling optimistic because... Massage the scalp, it helps. <laughs> All right, let me ask you a different question. In what ways do you have an excuse to feel very pessimistic about that situation? It's like, well, yeah, actually, I don't know. I'm a little, I'm a little downcast about it because blah, blah, blah. In what ways do you have an excuse to feel pessimistic about the situation? <clears throat> it's too good to be true. <laughs> That's, a pessimist can always go with that one. <laughs> you know, there are stock phrases that you have uh, for these sorts of questions. It's like, well, you know, think positive. That's a sort of a cultural trope. That's something a, an optimist can say. Too good to be true. Well, that, yeah, that's something a pessimist would say. Or we'll see. That's something the middle of the road wants to get it right. Careful person uh, would say. How many of you found that exercise interesting? Just off the top, a little 30-second exercise. Because, you know, what's, what's the insight there? The insight is that you have excuses to go either way all the time. Whatever the challenge is, whatever the stress is, whatever the opportunity is, whatever the exciting event might be, it doesn't have to be a nasty event, it can be an exciting event, you always have excuses to take it positively or to look at it negatively. There is always a choice. I once heard a bride say on her wedding day, well, I wonder how this is going to turn out. They're still married, just in case. 
in case you're wondering, right? There's always a choice. There's always a way your heart and your spirit could go. And I just think that's life. There's always an excuse to believe. And there's always an excuse to disbelieve. And you're a fool if you look for guarantees that are ironclad. Because this is a life of faith, not a life of of guarantees. And there's something about that that has to do with the meaning of life and how God constructed the universe and what it means to follow Jesus and whatnot. But that's just just an insight uh, to chew on a little bit. Uh, we, uh, We had Easter last week, which is kind of a thing that Christians do. How many of you caught it? Easter? We kind of celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus. Christians around the world uh, celebrate it. And, and now for a few weeks, we're going to do this very short sermon series on the immediate aftermath of Easter. But this is a very interesting time in human history in which uh, Jesus got resurrected, and then he actually hung around earth for a while, uh, for uh, around 40 days, uh, as it turns out uh, in the histories from Easter uh, to the day of uh, Ascension, and then right after that comes Pentecost, if you're following in the traditional Christian calendar. And we're just going to do a sermon series on the in-between. Jesus is resurrected, but he hasn't left earth yet. Uh, and it's just it's a very interesting time in, in history uh, because he was around, but he was kind of not around. You know, he would make appearances Uh, but then he would uh, disappear. Um, The whole world was changing forever during those 40 days. The whole world was changing in a fantastic way that would ultimately shape the entire globe. But even Jesus followers were kind of floating along trying to get their bearings because it was just a really weird, interesting time. They were half-understanding at best. Uh, And I think it's a very provocative 40 days in history because I feel like, you know, I am often half understanding at best. I'm often caught there right in that period where, you know, you have an excuse to believe and you have an excuse to disbelieve. How are you going to play it? What's the right way to play it? Uh, And that's kind of what these 40 days uh, are about. During that time, Jesus uh, visited a number of people. Uh, we read last week how he visited the 12. He showed up. Of course, he appeared uh, to uh, a couple of women uh, fresh out of the grave, uh, one or two, um, depending on the account. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that at one time he appeared to 500 people at once. There was sort of a Christian conference the largest ever, 500 people got together and Jesus made an appearance there. So some hundreds of people saw Jesus post-resurrection, pre-ascension uh, into heaven. Uh, maybe uh, the most famous example is Jesus visited his, his half-brother James during that time. Those of you familiar with the gospel accounts, during Jesus's itinerant earthly ministry when he was walking around the countryside with the 12 disciples, and the, and the troop of followers, Jesus' family did not believe in him during that time. Uh, we read uh, in like Mark 3 that they actually thought he was crazy, that he had lost his mind, that he was being uppity to the point of ridiculousness. And so James, who uh, was, you know, the son of Father Joseph and Mother Mary, uh, 
Jesus' brother or half-brother, depending on how you want to think about it, didn't believe in his brother, uh, Jesus, but Jesus visited him post-resurrection. And James came to believe. He actually became one of the leading lights of the early church, kind of became the leader of the church in Jerusalem um, after Jesus' visit, uh, and eventually would be martyred for his faith, would be killed, executed in a grisly manner along with most of the other um, early uh, disciples and apostles. So anyway, this is about that period of time and how people were figuring out how they were choosing to play it and how Jesus was choosing to play it during that very provocative, formative time. Uh, There's a passage uh, from Luke 24 uh, you'll find in your bulletins. It's also going to be up here on the big board, or you could follow along in your smartphone or old school Bibles. This is a story often called the road to Emmaus. Do you know it? It says, after Jesus was resurrected, um, um, and, and while his followers were still trying to figure it out. It's a story in which Jesus visits a couple disciples. Not like a couple of the famous 12 disciples, but these were just people who had, had come to follow Jesus during his uh, itinerant ministry on earth. Uh, and it's a, it's a story from Sunday. It's a story from Easter Sunday. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected. In the Luke account, it happens like after the scene at the grave, but before Jesus appears to uh, the 11 disciples in, in the room, the account that we read last week. So Jesus is like, he's busy on Sunday. He's appearing like all over the place uh, for different people, uh, and they weren't all necessarily together. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. This is outside Jerusalem. So they had left Jerusalem, and they were walking. Uh, they, were, they were leaving town, essentially, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Cool. But they were kept from recognizing him. Interesting. There's some sort of supernatural disguise thing going on here. He asked them, "Uh, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. Jesus is playing it so so coy here. I love this. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Cue theme music. Da-na-na. 
he said to them, how foolish you are. I bet it was a bit more colorful than that. I don't know. I'm just, hey, doofus. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Awesome Bible study. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Interesting. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Just just crazy story. It's so fascinating and so provocative on so many uh, levels. I mean, it's interesting. You know, Jesus has died. He has risen. And then he shows up for these guys. And I think, you know, that's the glaring point. The glaring point is that post-resurrection, living Jesus shows up and visits these guys. And you could just talk about that. But, you know, there are so many details in the story. And I think maybe the deeper wisdom is not that Jesus showed up. It's how Jesus showed up. And it's the nature of the interaction that's really, really uh, instructive. Okay, first off, who were these guys? Two disciples. We know one of their names. Uh, Cleopas, and um, there's a lot of argument about who he is. We don't actually know uh, for sure uh, who he is, and we don't know who the other guy was, and I like that. Uh, It's just, it just, it tells me that there were more things going on in that day, in that time, than we could possibly keep track of. And I love it as just an incredibly personal story. I mean, we get a lot of the stories of you know, the, the famous 12 and Paul and James and some of these other, uh, you know, super important Christian leaders. But Jesus was active in so many lives and doing so many things. At the end of the Gospel of John, it says that you couldn't write enough books to contain all the stories of the cool, interesting things that Jesus did uh, while he walked the earth. And I, I just love this. It's just a little aside this story. You know, you can kind of tell how it got into the Gospel of Luke. You know, Luke was a researcher. He was a, he was a Greek physician and a historian, and he went around interviewing people after uh, the church had gotten started. And you can imagine him in a meeting like this one day, and, and Cleopas or some other guy raised his hand and said, wait, I got a story to share. And he told the story, and Luke was like, that's so interesting. It's getting in the book. I'm going I'm to get it in the book. Um, but it's just, you know, it's sort of the 90-second testimony uh, that Luke caught uh, from these guys. I, don't, I just love it for that reason. It's comforting and it's personal uh, to me. Uh, I wonder why these disciples were hightailing it out of Jerusalem exactly. Um, you know, the guy that they followed had been killed, had been crucified on the cross. They managed to stay all the way till Sunday, uh, which, you know, they would have, it being sort of a Passover celebration, but then they are leaving town, 
And are they afraid that the religious rulers are going to round them up as well because maybe they were known Jesus sympathizers or something? But anyway, they are taken off. Uh, we're not really told um, anything except that they're going to uh, Emmaus. They are clearly distressed in the story. Uh, the word in the NIV is downcast, right? They were, they, it seemed like they were in a glass half empty moment or maybe a glass entirely empty moment. They were, they, were, they were bummed. They had made some judgment about the events, but they still had a bit of consternation. It said that they were amazed. These women amazed us when they said the grave was empty and some of the guys went and investigated it and it turns out that, that you know, his body's not there. They don't say you know, that he's risen, but they say there are reports of angels and there are reports that Jesus is alive, dot, 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 but we are leaving town. But, you know, it's, I, so where are they on that continuum of faith, you know? Are they like, yeah, Jesus could be alive, or they're like, Jesus is probably dead. You know, there's somewhere, there's somewhere in there, and, and, and in that medium ground, they're just reacting in stress, right? Stress is the choice uh, that, that they've made. Uh, I, I have a phrase I use in my life. They're in the thicket. You guys know what a thicket is? You ever been hiking in the forests or in the jungles and you're like, you leave the trail, maybe there's a little pig trail or something and you walk off and then pretty soon you're just, you're just in the bushes, right? Uh, and uh, if it's really thick or if there are thorn bushes around, um, it's like you could get stuck in the thicket and you spend all of your time just trying to, you know, hack away space for yourself but you lose your direction. You kind of lose the path. These guys are not on the path of faith. You know, they're kind of somewhere off the path. You know, they've, they've, they've left the straight and narrow at least a little bit. They haven't abandoned it entirely, but they're just kind of, just kind of in the thicket. Maybe they could get back to it, but they're not making much progress. Um, and they're discussing as they walk. Um, which I think is an interesting detail, uh, because what, what were they discussing, do you suppose? Why, why were they discussing things is the more interesting question for me. They were having some sort of evidently remarkable conversation because Jesus walks up to them and kind of eavesdrop for, eavesdrops for a while and you know, tries to get into it. They're probably talking in an animated sort of way. They were Mediterranean guys after all. What was their discussion for? What were they trying to figure out? What were they hashing through as they walked? And of course, we can't answer that for certain, but, but you imagine that they were trying to grope their way through the situation. All right, he was dead. We know that. Uh, his body's gone. What are the competing theories for that? Um, angels, reports that he's alive. Exactly what do we do with that, Cleopas? You know, and I'm not sure what the other guy's name is, probably Kevin. He said, well, I don't know, Kevin. Um, how does one react to this sort of unprecedented uh, situation? And they have a lot of angst uh, about it. I don't know, but... If I were there with 2,000 years of hindsight, I would show up and be like, well, what's the choice before you? 
What's the choice? You know, do you believe or do you disbelieve? Because sometimes we can argue without being clear on what the choice is, you know, and just grope our way along. Anyway, something like that. Uh, Jesus shows up and he said, oh, you guys are being sort of stupid. You are slow to believe, is how the phrase gets translated uh, in the NIV, which I think is just a fantastic phrase. Okay, I believe if I can get there eventually, sort of, you know. Anybody ever been slow to believe? A little, a little slow on the draw? And that's what he accuses them of. Um, and, then, and then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them using scriptures that they would have been very familiar with why they should have seen this coming. Why they should not have been surprised that Jesus was killed, and why they should not be surprised that it seems like something miraculous has happened on the back end of that. I really would have liked to have been in that Bible study. Some of our Ohana groups have really cool Bible studies. This would have been a a good Ohana group study uh, to be uh, a part of. I don't know exactly what Jesus said, but evidently, I mean, they had seven miles of walking. Evidently, it was a lengthy a Bible study. Maybe he quoted from Isaiah, or excuse me, Hosea chapter 6. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him, or Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see decay. Your anointed one, your Messiah see decay. All through the Old Testament, there are these little hints in the prophetic books that the Messiah was going to come, he was going to be killed, and then something very curious was going to happen, and God would not abandon him. God would give him life again, that he would see light, that he would not be dead so long that his body would decay. There were all these clues, and Jesus is just sort of quoting Scripture at them for several miles, evidently. And then they get, they get to the village, and Jesus plays coy with them still. Well, I really must be going. And they're like, no, man, that was an awesome Bible study. You need to hang out. Look, it's, the sun is setting. It's tired. Just come and share our, share our, uh, our room and, and eat with us. Um, and then finally there's this big reveal, right, where Jesus, they're all sitting at table, where they had probably sat with Jesus in former life many times if they were his close followers, and he takes bread and he breaks it, which is, of course, incredibly symbolic, not only of the fellowship that Jesus has had with his followers in the years previous, but, of course, you know, it, it is symbolic of the communion that believers would be celebrating, the Lord's Supper, where we share the bread and share the wine. It's just this incredibly poignant moment, and when it goes down, uh, there's, a, there's a reveal. Whatever supernatural disguise Jesus had been wearing up to that point, it's like, oh, Boom. And as soon as they see it, they lose it. As soon as they get the revelation, they, you know, Jesus disappears. They got the proof, but they don't get to carry it with them. (laughs) Um, Which is poignant uh, in and of itself. I love this line. Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us? We were having this little Bible study with this guy, and our hearts burned within us. Actually, I think in the original Greek, hearts is singular. Did not our heart, did not, did not our shared heart uh, burn within us while he was uh, talking uh, to us? 
and, he, and as he opened the scriptures to us, is how the NIV uh, translated it. What do you suppose that means? Have you ever had your heart burn within you in a way that did not involve Mexican food, you know? This is, this is a good sort of heartburn, right? What, what is that exactly? Have you ever had a moment where, like, you get an insight or you feel a stirring and it's like, man, I can, I can feel that. What is that? What is that? Has anybody had that experience? Anyone? Two, three, four? We, man, we're, we're a lame church. No, you ever had that? What is that? How would you describe it? What's happening there? Love? love? It would be love. It would be a provocation of love. That's interesting. A willingness to sacrifice for someone else. It's a good definition of love. Light coming in. You know, it's just sort of like, oh, I understand truth better. And that does something to you. Yeah, what's... What is that burning sensation? Awakening. 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 Like, I, I'm much more aware than I was a moment ago. Yeah. I'm sorry? Hope. Hopeful. Yeah, hope. That's an interesting emotion right there. An interesting virtue. Hope. Like a nervous excitement. Like a nervous excitement. Yeah. Camille's like, yeah, let me think about the experience. Hey, it's almost like I get nervous. It's that same sort of adrenaline pump, you know, and, and I feel energized, excited. Who is that, Amy? Anyway? Passion, which is an interesting word. Passion, which just means like a lot of everything at once. Revival is a word you think of. That's good. It's like life coming back. Jason? Conviction of mission. There's a discipler ladies and gentlemen. It's like, no, you, you get convicted that you got to get on with your work. You know, that there's stuff to do. It's like, oh, time to get back on, on the job. Yeah, I, it's, it's a provocative phrase for me. Uh, I can't help but think of the word courage. Um, and as I read this story, I thought of the phrase, you know, courage to dare. You know, that word dare is a powerful word because all they're doing is getting a scripture study and they're like, I, I just imagine their fear going away, you know, or, or their attitude toward uncertainty changing, right? When you're not certain about something, what attitude do you want to have? Well, it might not work, but I'm going to dare to believe, I'm going to dare. I'm going to give it a try, to use uh, the blue water word. Something like that. It's as if they said to each other, we really should have been believing all along. You know? And so now we're going we're gonna to do it going forward. We're going to, you know, dare to believe. Something like that. And then by the time Jesus reveals himself, they're like, oh, yeah, we have been slow. We have been slow. Now that we've dared to believe a little bit, then you get the fuller revelation of the Lord. And that's a great life principle right there. You know, once you dare to believe, then you see Jesus more clearly. 
if you commit yourself to stress and disbelief, then it's going to be hard for you to see Jesus, even if he's standing right next to you. Right? We appreciate that. Does that make sense? That's totally how it works, isn't it? Totally how it works. And this is a, a story about that. I mean, the obvious question in the story is why Jesus played it so coy, why he showed up in disguise. And, and I think maybe he did it because he wanted to encourage, well, he didn't want to just encourage belief in them. He wanted to encourage daring in them, which is a much better word for faith than belief. You know, you believe something that you're sure about. You dare to believe something that you could go either way on, right? And it's the daring, it's faith and not mere belief that is the critical skill in following uh, Jesus. Um, and then I note that right after that experience, they headed back to Jerusalem, which probably tells you something about why they left Jerusalem, right? It's like, well, now that we're going to dare to believe again, we're going we're gonna to go back, you know? It implies that they were running away from Jerusalem because they had not chosen to believe, because they had chosen to disbelieve, or just chosen not to choose, which is how many of us uh, play it during stressful periods of life. We just fold our arms and say, well, we'll see how this turns out. In the meantime, I'm going to go to the suburbs. Uh, objectively, I think mean, the takeaway from the story is that objectively, these guys could have believed without Jesus showing up, right? I mean, that's Jesus's point. He says, look, if you would just realize what the scriptures say, I mean, you guys know all of these all of these scripture passages, I mean, you have every excuse to believe the reports that you heard that Jesus is alive. It's all right there in front of you in black and white. I mean, you should have expected it. You don't need me to tell you that. They had every excuse to believe. It just said Jesus needed to show up and give them a little kick. Give them a little, what did Jesus give them? When he showed up. What did he impart to them? What did he tell them that they didn't already know? He didn't tell them anything that they didn't already know, probably. I mean, these, these were, you know, guys that probably knew the scriptures. Jesus says they knew the scriptures. You're just not realizing you're slow. I think he imparted attitude to them, right? I, I think mostly that's what it was, which is often the ministry that we render one to another. You know, Faith is what people are hungry for, and faith is primarily attitude, right? Faith is an approach to things. Faith is not belief. Faith is what you do with what you believe. It's what you choose about what you believe. It's how you apply it. And, and I think Jesus, in disguise, was just kind of moving in faith. And, uh, and they caught the spirit of it because your attitude is the most contagious thing about you, and, and Jesus' attitude sort of caught them up. And they're like, yeah, the scripture does say that. Oh, yeah, now that you mention it, the, the, the stories do lead us to expect that. You know, so much of life is, is just attitude. Uh, they had a choice all along. They just didn't have the, the faith to make the right choice. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. Uh, I asked you to think of some stress or some challenge in your life. You got that? Some trial, right? Is this some sort of trial that you're in or that lays before you immediately? Um, is God with you in this trial? 
Or is this trial evidence that God has abandoned you? How are you going to take it? Will God bless you in the midst of this trial? Or is this trial evidence that God has chosen to not bless you? Which is it? You have an excuse to take it either way. I guarantee you. Know, I guarantee you. you could justify either attitude. I'm certain of it. Because that's how life works. I don't know what your specific trial is, but I, but I bet you you could play it off either way. Reasonably. <laughs> You're not going to be certain about anything, but you could probably take it either way. I bet you have some excuses to believe. If nothing else, there's a lot of scripture that suggests you should have a faith attitude about life. That no temptation has beset you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful and will provide you a way out. You know, that all things work together for good to those who trust in the Lord. That God knows the plans he has for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You know, I, mean, I could keep going, but, but many of you know the scriptures uh, as well as I do. There are plenty of, of excuses to, to believe that whatever your situation is in life, oh, God could use this for something great. This story could be fantastic. Or you could take it the other way. It's like, well, I don't know. That, that's a little rosy. We'll have to wait and see. You know, I've been disappointed before, all of which, you know, may well be quote-unquote true as far as it goes. Uh, for me, uh, the interesting personal question is why I so often choose to disbelieve. Uh, because, because I do a lot. Uh, by temperament, I'll just ask you, by temperament, am I a glass half full guy or a glass half empty? Stop laughing. By temperament, those of you who know me, what am I? Clearly, I am a, I'm a glass half empty uh, sort, of, sort of guy. Um, but I, I, I have every excuse to, to believe as well. I mean, you know, I've, I've had a lot of rough things happen to me in life. I've also seen, seen more than my fair share of miracles, you know. I mean, I know objectively that whatever the situation is, I could take it Either way, you know, Camille stands up and said, oh, yeah, I got healed during worship. It's like, we have seen that so many times that I'll probably forget it by the end of the day. God bless you, I love you. But, you know, we'll probably get one in the next week or two. Uh, it's like, why doesn't that convict me with more power? You know, it, why am I so programmed to kind of shrug off the excuses to believe but seize the excuses to be stressed, which is uh, another word for, for disbelief. But I do that. You know, I, I do that all the time. And, and, you know, I do a lot of self-analysis and say, okay, well, why do I do that? What value do I get from choosing to be stressed? What value do I get from choosing against belief? or choosing to disbelieve. I, I very rarely like out and out disbelieve. I just kind of choose to not believe. And I get stuck in the thicket, right? In the medium ground 
Um, I spend way too much time there. One of the reasons uh, I, I make a choice for disbelief is because of self-protection. There's something in me but that believes that if, if I do it, I'll be safer, safer emotionally, I assume. You know, it's like, it's hard to be disappointed if you don't expect anything good. Yay. That's a, that's a heck of a way to live. But how many of you do it? How many of you do it? I'm just going to see what happens. I'm not going to expect anything good because then if something not good happens, I'm going to be crestfallen as if I won't be anyway. You know, it doesn't even make any sense. Or sometimes uh, I do this. Uh, if a trial happens or some stress comes into my life or there's some uncertain situation, I have an angry reaction to it uh, we have a name for people who react in anger to stressful situations. We call them men. Um, and, you know, and I totally do it because uh, I'm the manliest of men. Um, and anger is a wonderfully empowering emotion. If you get angry, you feel uh, stronger, at least temporarily. And I think I make that choice uh, for an anger response uh, because I, I want to feel empowered instead of beaten down. So I take the shortcut, uh, anger, uh, and everything that comes with it, you know, critique and, um, you know, acidity um, because uh, it makes me feel a little uh, stronger in the short term. Um, sometimes I feel that if I meet stress and uncertainty and trials with joy and faith that I am in some way uh, letting God get away with something, uh, which tells you a lot about my twisted psyche. Um, it's like, wow, God, you let this happen. How dare you? How dare you? You should treat me more special than that. And that goes into, you know, like my background and, you know, the way I was conditioned by feeling betrayed by people along the way and stuff like that. You know, I'm a, I'm a complicated mess, people. Uh, and I understand this about my psyche and the way that I interact with the world. But the fact that I understand it doesn't necessarily force me to make the right choice in the moment. And so what I have to do is kind of take a step back and, and just kind of, you know, meditate on, on the way of, of faith. Faith is an attitude with which you approach things. And you have to decide to be a person of faith. Faith is not going to happen to you. Things happen in life, and you have to decide whether you're going to approach it from this side or that side. Choose the way of faith. Choose to be the sort of person that uses the the technique of faith, the method of faith, whatever you want to call it, whatever happens, like, all right, all right, that's a little bit destabilizing. I'm going to approach it with a faith attitude because I believe in God, because I believe that God could do something amazing right here. Now, whatever happens, there might be a revelation of the Lord in it that maybe, although this is crazy, maybe, you know, this was meant to happen in some fashion. Maybe I should have seen it coming, or maybe, you know, because we are Christians and live a life that comes from the grave, 
as much as we live a life that comes from the womb, we should be able to shrug off these stressors and, you know, and shrug off these situations and stay on the path instead of walking into the thicket. But, you know, it's always that. It's always choosing a way to approach things. How are you going to approach it? How are you going to approach this situation? How are you going to approach this relationship? How are you going to approach this person? A lot of times this comes up in interpersonal situations. Am I going to approach this person by disbelieving in them? Or am I going to approach this person by trying to believe the best things about them and interact with them like that? Well, that takes a lot of vulnerability. That takes a lot of attitude, you know? But I'm going to choose a way of doing it as best as I can, in spite of my complicated, messy psyche, and that's the discipline of faith. And I think that's why Jesus wasn't obvious when he got together with these guys, because he was teaching them the way of daring instead of the way of of certainty. And it just makes us healthier, stronger people. If Jesus is alive, then what? If Jesus is alive, then what? Um whatever the stressor is in your life, whatever the good opportunity, whatever the looming uh, disaster, um, does it make a difference if Jesus is alive? Um, I think this might have been what the two disciples were talking about on the road to Emmaus. It's like, well, if the reports are true and he's alive, then what? Because he's not like walking with us anymore. Irony. Um... Everybody thinks he's dead. I mean, if he's alive, how do we play this? And I think it was, I think it was confusing uh, for them. Um, and they, they chose to be stressed out about it. Once they changed their attitude, though, they changed their trajectory. They did a U-turn and headed back to Jerusalem. Uh, they chose to stick with their community of faith and to change the world uh, together. Um, I think there are two ways to ask that question. See if you get the difference. What if Jesus is alive? What if Jesus is alive? What's the difference? Dramatic capability. No, no, no. Attitude, obviously, right? Attitude is the difference. Uh, What if this isn't a time of stress? Uh, What if this is like a time of faith for you? You know, that's the choice. Let's pray. Pray and see what the Lord says to you about it. Well, I trust he's speaking to you about some things. Uh, I'll ask folks on the prophetic team if they have any words they want to share with individuals. You got one, Jace? These are people that just keep their ears open to see if the Lord whispers something to them. 
uh, for someone else in the congregation. Uh, they're not perfect, uh, but you know, God speaks, so we give space to listen uh, together. Um, he often shows up and heals people or gives people a little uh, revelation. So what do you got, Jace? There we go. Uh, hi, my name is Jason. I feel like I have a word for different members of the congregation, but it was kind of like seeing uh, light bulbs kind of flickering on, off, off uh, was kind of the sense I was getting. And I feel the way that I'm interpreting it uh, is that there are people in this room that as Jordan has been speaking in your heart, in your spirit, you're kind of feeling the flickers uh, of kind of that convicted or that burning heart. Um, specifically in areas in your life where you're looking for breakthrough or you're looking, you're on that journey of discovery, uh, like the disciples were on the road to Emmaus. You've heard about this Jesus. You've heard that he has this resurrection power, that he has uh, lived this life. And so in your heart, you feel kind of like that flicker of, am I believing or am I not believing? Am I believing or am I not believing? Uh, I think specifically it speaks to situations where you kind of feel the people around you uh, have really been encouraging you to keep that light off. Uh, and so I would like to invite, uh, if that's you, someone who's been flickering on and off, on and off, uh, I want to invite you to take a, a leap or a stand of faith and kind of stand so we as a congregation can pray for you. Uh, so if that resonates with you, someone who uh, has been flickering, but you want to choose to stay on. Uh, would you please stand? And so uh, for those who are standing, if you're st sitting near someone, please extend a hand uh, towards them. And I want to pray for you guys. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray for our brothers and our sisters who are standing, who are choosing today a path and journey of faith. Uh, choosing to keep the light on uh, and not to let others turn it off. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would protect each and every one of them, empower them, encourage them for the purposes uh, and the ministry and the things that you would have them do. I pray, Father, just any disappointments uh, of the past of doing ministry, any discouragements uh, would be wiped off now. Uh, just even as we've been going into this Easter season, you can't have resurrection without death. And so, Father, I pray you would come alongside each and every person who is standing. And even for us who may be still sitting, Jesus, I pray that we would experience your resurrection power. Uh, that we would see your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> you want to share something, Justin? And can I have the prayer team just head over toward uh, the Mackay Wall and you guys get ready to pray for folks. The picture I got this morning was uh, somebody just hanging at the end of their rope. And I, I believe kind of goes with the question this morning, what's the stress in our life? What's, what's, what thing are we holding on to that we're at the end of our rope and we just can't let go of? And I think God's saying, just, just let go. I'm, I'm here to catch you. And the scripture I got is from uh, Ecclesiastes 3, and it's where God's talking about a time for everything. And in verse 6, he says, there's a time to search and a time to give up and a time to keep and a time to throw away. And in verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom 
what God has done from the beginning to the end. He knows our beginning from the end. He knows what's going to catch us. He knows what we need to do. So right now I just say, take, take me, Lord, and I just let go of whatever's going on. Beautiful. That speaks to you. Come snap a picture of it or talk to Justin and could walk away with it. It's a great line. Uh, he makes everything beautiful in its time. Uh, every other ugly situation, every disappointment, he will make beautiful in some way in its time. That's a great promise. Uh, everybody stand. Let's dismiss. Father God, I pray that you would uh, change us all a little bit before we go. I pray that you would fill our hearts uh, with love and courage and, and, uh, and revival and the power to be salt and light in the world this week, I pray. Uh, that we'd move beyond ourselves and influence the world around us and to fulfill the mission uh, that you gave us at the beginning of the church. Um, we choose faith today, Lord. Uh, we choose uh, the attitude of faith and pray that you would help us to get the hang of it. Uh, it's a weird life, Lord. Uh, bless us to be a weird people. In Jesus' name we pray.